God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I have a bit of an interest in genealogy, the study of family history and family trees, as I know uh, some others do. It seems to be a pretty popular pastime, uh, not least for we Kiwis who have all at some stage crossed the oceans or the skies to settle here in this land. I wonder if you have enjoyed, as I have from time to time, the BBC series, Who Do You Think You Are?, where various celebrities have their family history traced, and invariably there will be some surprises. It's a bit like the Antiques Roadshow, isn't it? Um, some fascinating discoveries, occasionally a bit of a juicy scandal there, and not a few tears on the way. But just about without fail, it seems to give those who are involved a stronger sense of their own identity, being part of a bigger family story and picture. This seems to be important in these days, doesn't it, where many feel you can create your own identity or persona and change it at will as often as you like. I was looking at a new uh, youth resource for studying the Bible the other day, and I was intrigued that it was framed around the question, who am I? And then it used the Bible to encourage the young person to find that they were loved, that they were chosen, created, forgiven, known, with a purpose, and with unique gifts and abilities. But I was intrigued that that was the way it was framed. The question, who am I, seems to be a crucial one in a world where it seems we are told we can be anyone we like or we want to be. Interesting then that when we come to our gospel reading, Jesus is asking a similar question of his disciples, but not at this stage about who they are, rather who do people say that I am, Jesus says. And his disciples are very happy to give him the word on the street, the latest gossip. Well, uh, people say, people are wondering if perhaps you might even be John the Baptist, come back to life. Or Elijah, who in Jewish belief was due to return to prepare the way for the Messiah when he came. Elijah would appear first. Or perhaps Jeremiah or one of the other prophets who were able to do amazing things, even miracles. Any of those would be a pretty bold claim about Jesus, painting him as a prophetic figure, a revolutionary perhaps, raising hopes that he might be some sort of freedom fighter or zealot to tr who would try to get away with as much as he could before, like other would-be messiahs, and there were others, being swiftly put down by the threatened Roman and Jewish authorities who wouldn't brook any opposition. But Jesus pushes them a little bit further. But who do you say that I am? Hear that question asked to us as well. And I wonder if there's a bit of a, bit of a silence, a bit of a pregnant pause, a bit of shuffling of the feet. But then Simon Peter, as ever, is at least willing to go out on a limb and commit himself. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. 
Can you imagine the silence that followed that? Let's just pause as we let that momentous claim sink in. We need to note where we are in Matthew's Gospel, both geographically and in the structure of the Gospel. We're just over halfway through Matthew's Gospel. We're 16 chapters through the 28, and here we are at a point of transition. And where are we geographically? Well, we're at a high point, literally. Jesus has taken his disciples to the highest point of the north of Israel, to the region of Caesarea Philippi, on the slopes of Mount Hermon, probably about the same height as Ruapehu. It's about 20 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, not too far, really, from Lebanon and Syria and today's Golan Heights. It's the furthest north that we know Jesus heading. Jesus, it seems too, has a little bit gone bush, if you like. He's in a very rural and isolated setting. He's not actually in the town of Caesarea Philippi, but within the, the outskirts there. In some ways, you might think, well, perhaps it's a safe place to talk about issues of identity and messiahship. Seems at last he's managed to escape the crowds, those who might be eavesdropping on this conversation with his disciples. But it's also a place with a cultural and religious history of its own. Mount Hermon is the source of the River Jordan, which is going to flow down there, right down through the land, right down. And the springs there, the springs from which the river arose, were associated from ancient times with worship of the pagan god Pan. It's also a quite a risky place for Jesus to accept from Peter's lips that title of Messiah. Jesus is well aware that Messiah title, heralding a Jewish king, would be a direct threat to the local ruler Herod Antipas. He's a puppet king in place there in a grace and favor, accepted, allowed there by the Romans to just keep things in order. But he certainly liked the fact that he was considered uh, almost like a king. It's also somewhat of a cheek, if not a direct challenge, to be declared Messiah in a place with the name Caesarea Philippi, named for King Herod the Great's son, Philip. He named it himself, as you do. And then also named for Caesar the Emperor, who was openly and encouraging being worshipped as a son of God. No wonder then that when Simon Peter hails Jesus as the Messiah, the son of the living God, that Jesus sternly orders his disciples not to tell anyone that he is the Messiah. For Peter was so right, but so wrong. Yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but Peter still at this stage thinks he has Jesus sewn up. He's in that Messiah box with all its accompanying hopes of being a human king, an anointed one, yes, who will rescue Israel from Roman oppressors and bring in God's kingdom at the head of an army just as King David did in power and might. So yes, he's so right, but so wrong. 
as we'll hear next week, Jesus will begin from this transition point to teach his disciples, to define for them just what being the Messiah will mean for him. And talking more and more of coming suffering and passion. And he will begin to live out that suffering as he begins to head south and turn his face toward Jerusalem. He will become what his words say. But that's next week. Meanwhile, Jesus has some things to say to Simon that will redefine who he is. It's a time of transition for him too. And not less he gains a new name, just as a few weeks ago we heard about Jacob being renamed Israel. So here we have Simon, the son of Jonah, with all those resonances too of Jonah, who was the prophet called by God who promptly ran in the opposite direction. Here, though, Simon is called by Jesus to be Peter, Petros. And on this rock, Petra, I will build my church. That's quite a good pun, but it's even better in the original Aramaic. You are kephar, and on this kephar, I will build my church. Same words. In the Greek, actually, there's a bit of a bit of a nuance because Petros is actually quite a small stone. It's a pebble, really. And on this boulder, I will build my church. So it's a little bit like saying, well, Peter, you're a chip off the old block, but you're really quite a small chip at the moment. There's still a bit of a gap between what Peter is and what he will become as leader of the church. But I think that gives us hope. We know full well that Peter will fail and fail his master spectacularly. And yet Jesus keeps on calling him Peter. He doesn't take the name away. He calls him again and again to become that rock, to become rock solid, even when he acts more like a stumbling block and gets it wrong, just as we do. Jesus keeps on calling him to become a stepping stone to enable the faith of others. Peter himself will pick up that image in his own first epistle, chapter 2. Come to Jesus, a living stone, and like living stones yourselves, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house. I often think of that as I drive along here and look over at the stone church. I often think, too, of our calling to be living stones. I thought of that um, a couple of years back when I was in Glasgow and saw the grave and memorial for David Livingston and thought again of that, that, uh, those words that were made into a name, be a living stone. What does it mean to be that living stone within the spiritual house of God, out there in God's world and in our community? What is it to try to be a stepping stone, not a stumbling stone? On this rock, I will build my church, Jesus says. This is the very first time we hear the word church in the Gospels. It's only in Matthew's Gospel. It's only a couple of times. The church is in Greek, the ecclesia, literally those called out to serve God. It's the same word as was used for the assembly of the people of Israel in the Hebrew scriptures. They were called out 
to be a light to the nations. And so now the church too is called out to be God's people, to serve God, to be that light in the world. That's the image that Paul takes up for us in our epistle reading to the Romans, which we'll be focusing on for the next few weeks too. We, the church, are not to be conformed to this world. What a challenge that is. But to be transformed, as in the image on our screen, literally metamorphosed like a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. And I've still got one chrysalis from last season that's sort of hanging on there, and I'm not quite sure whether it's going to work, but I always love uh, that exercise of uh, being alongside those caterpillars and keeping them going and feeding them, knowing that uh, after that long stint as the chrysalis, they will come transformed into a butterfly. Be transformed. It's a lifelong process, continual conversion by the renewal of our minds so that we may better discern God's good, acceptable and perfect will. It's a powerful image, isn't it? And a hopeful one for the springtime of year in our world. Another image in our Romans reading is just as challenging, I think, the call to be a living sacrifice. I can always remember from when I was back in my student days, uh, dear Margaret Woods saying, uh, the trouble with a living sacrifice is that it keeps trying to crawl off the altar. Bit of a graphic image, that one, isn't it? The trouble with a living sacrifice is it keeps trying to crawl off the altar. Hence the call to bring ourselves afresh to God in offering. As we come, as we offer our gifts, as we sing our offertory hymn, it's self-offering as well. As we come to communion with our hands open to receive the body of Christ, we come and offer ourselves afresh. And we come together as the body of Christ together with all our gifts, our gifts differing. Called by name, yes, as individuals, but also called to be church together. That is our calling. That is our calling in our world that faces so many challenges at this time. Some lovely images to take away today. Called to be living stones. Called to be those who are constantly being renewed and transformed by God's Spirit. Called to be the body of Christ with all our gifts serving Christ in the world. Called to be church together. May we be so for God's glory among us and beyond. Amen.